beautiful people, welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, very glad for you to be here. Welcoming you to my office for the first time, the leaves have fallen off the trees enough that I can get enough of a signal to actually Zoom from my office rather than my dining room. Very excited. Uh, welcome to this week's show. Of course, regular contributor representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. How are you, Emily? I am well. Good to see you and love your office background. I don't think I've ever seen it before after all these years. Me too. It's just a juicy green, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and welcoming to the show the first for the first time, representative Catherine Sims, who represents the district Orleans 4 and is also a member of the Ways and Means Committee, along with Emily. Very glad you can join us today, Catherine. Yeah, so glad to be here with you today. So we're going to talk about many things, as we do on the the Montpelier Happy Hour, Catherine. But we wanted to talk to you specifically about resilience and and funding infrastructure to, to hopefully make communities more resilient in the future. And one bill that was introduced last session in January, I believe, is H-105, which is the Community Resilience and Disaster Mitigation Fund. Uh, And I believe you're the lead sponsor. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about this bill and and what you were hoping it would achieve if it it passes. Yeah. So... This bill is about trying to help communities have access to capital that they need to invest in climate resilient infrastructure. So I, I think as you know, we all saw this summer with the flood, Vermont is increasingly vulnerable to extreme weather events. Our state is getting warmer and it's getting wetter. And I want to uh, you know, jumpstart the conversation about how we can make sure that all communities have access to the resources that they need to um, be more safe um, in in the face of climate change and extreme weather. And so this bill um, looked at uh, increasing um, assessments on insurance companies um, to uh, create a fund that would be available to communities to make investments in, you know, watershed restoration, uh, home buyouts, grid hardening, um, creating uh, emergency shelter facilities so that we can be more prepared um, in the future. And, you know, there, there's a cost to this work. Um, but I think as we saw with the flood this summer, we can either pay a lot to clean up after, or we can make smart investments up front to save money um, in, in the long run. And so, you know, introduce this bill before the flood, but uh, imagine that uh, given the summer experience, um, you know, we'll have more opportunities to really dig into that issue um, in, in the coming session. That's some terrible luck, but I'm very glad that um, the bill is sitting there on the wall as a conversation starter on these issues. Um, you know, I also, two things that I've been um, come to mind for me, one, Brattleboro has been doing something of a show and tell around the flood resilient infrastructure that we began to build right after Irene. Um, And so some of that is, you know, sharing with folks how we moved a lot of homes in our trailer park um, out of the floodplain and are still continuing to do that work. 
um, really in partnership with VHCB and a lot of other state partners. And then the other is building out multiple floodplains in our river um, and really the huge difference. We got less rainfall, absolutely, than other towns, um, but would have seen significant flooding if we had not had those um, floodplains and we're building another one. And so just, I say that as like, just an acknowledgement that these things are actually possible if there are resources for them. Um, and we could systematize that process. Um, I also went to a VPIRG event, um, Vermont Public Interest Research Group event yesterday in Brattleboro that um, is part of a tour that they're doing in partnership with a lot of other organizations focused on creating a fund with very similar purposes as what you just described, Catherine, um, but funded through essentially um, asking those who basically created climate change to be paying for it. And so it would be funded by dollars from, you know, your multinational fuel providers, um, ExxonMobil, et cetera. Um, given just like basically asking folks to clean up the mess that they made. We do that on a small scale with things, you know, we've done that with PCBs before, et cetera. Um, and we have some, um, we do that with tires even, right? Um, and so this is doing it on a grand scale as a way of creating a fund like this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, as you said, nice to have the examples of the investments made around Irene to sort of prove that if we make these investments up front and they can help our communities be, um, be more resilient um, and, and, and adapt in the face of climate change. I, you know, I, I would just add that I think there are some other things that we learned um, during the flood as well. So like already working on an additional draft, uh, building off the, the the original draft of the Climate Resilient um, Fund bill that is trying to incorporate some of the additional learnings um, from this last flood experience. And, you know, two additional pieces that adding to this next iteration. One is that um, in order to apply for kind of large scale capital projects to help communities be resilient and adapt, um, see a need for investing earlier to help communities assess and develop a plan so that they know what infrastructure they need to invest in. And especially our small towns where there's you know, three volunteer select board members and a part-time town clerk, having the technical expertise and the capacity to do that work is, is a challenge. And so um, in this kind of second iteration of the bill, including um, funding for that assessment and planning so that communities can be ready to apply to take on the larger projects. And then the other thing I would add is, um, you know, for me, the value of the neighbor to neighbor and kind of mutual aid organizations um, emerged as another kind of really critical piece of helping communities respond in the event um, of, of a extreme weather event. And so um, also exploring ways that we can invest in, um, you know, resiliency hubs, places where folks can go in the event of a weather event where they can stay, you know, warm or cool or dry and have access to technology, as well as the connections between people to make sure that everyone in our community is cared for and that someone's knocking on doors, asking if people need help and, um, you know, that, that certainly emerged for me as an additional kind of learning of, of what we took away from the flood and saw working in some of our communities. Absolutely. Last night, we were sort of brainstorming what we um, would want a fund like that to pay for. And I, you know, 
said a bunch of things. And I was like, I just want government to work <laughs> in these particular instances, right? And so that includes like advanced planning capacity um, that is, you know, available at the state level and can be accessed very easily by municipalities. You know, in Brattleboro, the work that we've seen, um, both to build out the floodplain and to relocate homes have both actually been pri by private organizations. One was with significant HUD money um, given to our local housing authority. And the other was um, the TriPark, the mobile home parks board of directors. And in both cases, the town assisted with that process a lot, but was not leading the process. And it's sort of an accident that both of those organizations had the capacity that they needed to get it done. And I'm grateful for it, but that doesn't, does not a system build and is not replicable across the state. And so really agreed that we need that planning capacity at the state level that is then accessed at the local level. So we can have local solutions that are actually supported by real humans able to do the work. Um, and, you know, the mutual aid networks can be amazing. What we saw, you know, spring up during COVID was really extraordinary. And I think saw the beginning of some of that happening, sort of being systematized statewide as sort of the mutual aid networks during COVID got in touch with each other. Um, and I know that our regional planning commissions hold some of the responsibility for sort of emergency planning, um, but don't have the capacity to do that in the way that they need to, given that we are sort of seeing more and more catastrophes coming sooner and sooner. And, and I think I would just add that, you know, it. it it's not only sometimes, you know, RPCs or other regional or statewide organizations not always having the capacity, but it's also about the value of that social capital within a community and those yes. relationships. You know, we um, have some extraordinary groups up here in Northeast Kingdom organizing and the civic standard, and they were able, you know, the, like the state and FEMA held these big, you know, uh, you know, events at the local school with all the you know, federal officials, they're ready to help you. And, you know, that was really valuable for many folks in the community. But there are some who don't always feel comfortable or welcome or able to access those. And that's where, you know, the relationships that have been built over years with the neighbor neighbor groups were just invaluable because they were trusted folks who knocked on their neighbor's door and said, like, are you OK? What are the challenges that you're facing? And we're here to help you navigate that. And so, you know, I don't think it's an either or. It's just a both and. Um, oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that can be really powerful is if there's um, some organizational capacity to be thinking about this is if a mutual aid network is thriving and one person who's playing a large role in that needs to step back a little bit, um, some professional capacity can even just help with transitions. You know, I think a lot of us, um, all three of us in this Zoom room even are, you know, tend to step up in instances like that, but life changes and you can't, you know, do the same volunteer work forever. So I think professional organizations can really help with those transitions or just help save people from reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, sharing spreadsheet templates, sharing, you know, all kinds of things. What I um, appreciated about the bill when I read it through and what you just said here, Kathleen, is it, it sounds like um, it will be flexible enough, whatever is set up, to, to meet towns where they are. Like I think back to Irene and Halifax and Brattleboro, you know, Brattleboro has a much higher population. And so Irene 
damaged a lot of houses uh, and a lot of personal property where Halifax, you know, much lower um, population, but roads, their roads were, were decimated. Um, And so those towns had two very different sets of needs after Irene. And I like that what it sounds like you're proposing can meet towns where they're at and meet where they're at. um, Like you said, resource wise, it's very different to have a large professionalized municipal government versus the three volunteer select board and the town clerk. Um, I also really want to kind of loop back to that concept of um, creating systems. Um, I mentioned before the show, and this is for the listener's value, I used to work at a hospital and part of my job was to work with the emergency planner. So we planned everything from um, fire drills to VY accidents to pandemics. That's Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant for anyone who's not a Wyndham County local. Yes. Yes. So a nuclear disaster um, and to pandemics, which was this was years before COVID. And it was very eye opening to see like how far deep you need to plan for, because you have to assume people are going to get sick and drop away and you don't want a leadership vacuum anyway. You know, the concept that was drilled into me is when a crisis hits, you don't want people reacting. You want them responding to a planned protocol. And Mm -hmm. I think Vermont is getting, unfortunately, getting better at that, you know, for members of the public. I think we still need to get better. Um, For example, when the floods hit this summer, I remember I was listening to a um, newscast and they, they were saying, okay, at this point, we think everyone needs to call 211 if you need help. We're waiting to get confirmation from the governor's office on that. That conversation, when we really have our systems in place, will not happen. It will be a disaster has been declared. You call 211, you know, step one, step two, step three, and people don't have to think about it anymore. So that's really where I hope once we have our inst- infrastructure built, we can really systematize things for people on the ground level. Um, So when they're in crisis, you know, they know they're protected. They know they have resources and they know how to access them. Yeah. 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 And some of that is hardening infrastructure to the point where people are just even able to call 211 in an emergency. Right. Mm -hmm. Because right now, if my power went out, I couldn't call anything. Right. And power goes out more and more often these days, right? Yeah, I mean, I so appreciate, you know, a couple of things that you said in there. You know, one is, and and I think this is true for all of our work in the legislature, really hope that we can be um, centering um, that different communities have different needs and that our job is not to have a kind of one-size-fits-all solution. It's like establishing a program that wherever you are on the capacity scale or the size or whatever your need is, there is an entry point that really works for you. Um, And so, you know, I hope as we hold these conversations around, you know, um, climate change and and weather, you know, that we just had this flood experience. And so I think that's fresh on all of our mind. And that's one of the potential hazards that we face moving forward. But I hope that we can really be thinking about setting up programs that are, you know, 
there to support um, all hazards, you know, whether it's snow or ice or heat, um, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure in investments that we need to make to make sure that we're um, more resilient in the face of kind of all of those hazards. And we need to do it in a way that works for communities of all different sizes and scales and capacities. And um, as you said, we need to build the muscle of like, how do we activate in a response? And I, I think, you know, that was a conversation we had in our community a lot. We were like, wow, we're, we're realizing that we don't have this down to a well-oiled machine yet. And like, it's worth taking the time to document what we're doing and reflect on it. And cause we're going to need to do it again. And we're going to need to do it like faster and more nimbly and more flexibly. And, um, I think there's still a lot of work to do to make sure that, um, you know, we know whose role is what and where we go. Um, and again, for, you know, many of my small towns, it takes, you know, capacity to put those those kind of systems in place and, and bandwidth. And so as we shift out of the kind of immediate recovery phase, I, I hope that we can also be thinking about providing resources and support to communities to have those middle and kind of long-term conversations. And it takes help to bring everyone together and reflect on it and document. And then, you know, when someone says, oh, you know, we really need to create this document or this protocol or get this piece of equipment that there's you know support to help communities actually do that work because um, it's it, it can be easy to kind of just get back to normal and forget all the things that we need to do until we're in the next crisis and we certainly want to make sure that we're better prepared for the future yeah and those documents need to be kept alive from crisis to crisis and updated from crisis to crisis um, and the relationships that make those systems work need to be maintained between crises. And, you know, unfortunately, we're having them more and more often. And so that becomes easier and easier. Um, but sort of also, you know, I talked to a lot of folks in the aftermath of the flood who were sort of leading government responses. And they reflected on how different this was than COVID, because during COVID, everyone was sitting at home, like glued to their devices, <laughs> desperate for human contact and information. Whereas during flood response, folks were outside digging, you know, digging in the mud and not necessarily in the same kind of like deep information and content consumption, which requires sort of, you know, a flexible system, right? And that kind of flexible system that's flexible to those two different crises is also flexible to different humans and the different ways that they live in their communities. And so I think, you know, something that's adaptable on a macro level means it might also be adaptable on a micro level. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had my community has this great neighbor to neighbor group and created this amazing spreadsheet of vulnerable people in the community that had been checked on during COVID. And um you know, then the day after flood, we were like, oh, we should be checking in on people. We have that resource. Let's get it back. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, shoot, that's a Google Doc. Like, we don't have internet. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like, you know, to your point about keeping things updated and recognizing that, like, what we have access to changes in different crazy. And it's like, oh, shoot, okay, next time we need to have a print copy that's in a binder that everyone knows where it is. And, you know, <laughs> just those, those little learnings um, that hopefully we can carry forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, you know, like Montpelier's emergency response system is like in the floodplain, like the state emergency response system, I mean, is in the floodplain, like what's happening? Let's, let's be strategic. So what I appreciate about um, thinking about these funds, and thinking about these systems that we're talking about is they are both preventative and responsive, mm -hmm. right? Infrastructure that is preventative um, is also the kind of infrastructure that we want to build 
after a major event, right? So like when we rebuild our roads after they're flooded out, we can rebuild them with better culvert systems, right? When we fix our dams, we can make sure that they have a much higher sort of like floodplain attached to them. Um, and so when we're thinking about, and when we like strengthen our communities to respond to the emergencies that have to happen after an event and strengthen those connections, those are the same communications and connections that can happen so that people know how to get out of flooding and go somewhere safe or um, how to take care of each other when they're having, you know, even just major road work done, right? I would add to that concept of infrastructure, um, just naming the importance of cross-training. So for example, um, if we know 211 is going to be activated, um, to have people in other parts of government trained in, in what to do in case 211 gets so overwhelmed, you know, they need to pull in another call center or like on the local level, um, you have your person in charge of emergency planning, but you also make sure that person one, two, and three are also trained so that they can jump in if that first person is, you know, stuck in their home between two flooded rivers, right? Um, yeah, or in one of my towns, the emergency management director was on vacation that week and, um, you know, sort of realized that that cross training was vitally important and <laughs> be done next time so that we're not like, wait, where is that document again? Who's supposed to be in charge of what? Who has um, the keys to the closet with all the important, yeah, walkie talkies? Yep. <laughs> um, we have just five minutes before the end of this section. Um Quickly, uh, Catherine, I think you said that part of this funding would come from an assessment on insurance policies. Is that still the idea or do you think that will morph or how would that work? Yeah, well, it seems like there are a lot of different conversations happening around how do we, you know, raise the capital that we need to do this work and, you know, uh, Representative Kornheiser mentioned the very much call me Emily here on this glorious podcast, Catherine. Chair, Chair Kornheiser. Um, uh, you know, there's the kind of make big oil pay piece. There's, you know, the piece in my bill around um, uh, hazard um, insurance and increasing assessment there. You know, we have uh, FEMA, there are other federal, you know, resources in the IIJA. I, know I feel very stuck on this idea that right now we actually have a huge amount of funding for this stuff that comes in like 67 million different tranches and a community needs to know how to access all 67 million of those rather than the state government actually knowing how to access all of those and the town just needs to ask for help with a project. So, so the hope here is that maybe all those conversations can come together and we can create one fund that maybe has multiple revenue sources um, blended and braided together that make it, you know, easy access for a small community. Um, you know, and I think we have models where we've done that in other programs that can that can apply here. I think it's going to take a little bit of this and that. Um, I was talking with the Vermont Emergency Management folks and, you know, they're, um, you know, certainly experts in the kind of FEMA program. And in many cases it requires a match or there are things that FEMA don't cut that doesn't cover. And, and again, how do we 
pool all that together and have one fund that um, you know can can help leverage and maximize um, access to those resources and complement them where there are gaps um, and uh, help communities uh, prioritize their investments on what will have the most impact. But I think we could go deep on that after the break. There's like a thousand things to say about all that, Olga. I'm, I'm terrified about the fact that we're running out of town while we're talking about fund something. Well, you know what I like about what you just said, Catherine, is all those different sources are, or as Emily said, 64,000 sources and people don't necessarily know how to access that. I think in some ways that's where a lot of our crisis response is right now. We've created a lot of good pieces, but they haven't fully knitted together yet. Um, as one big system. And so I just appreciate how that kind of highlights uh, where we are right now. Um, yeah. When you're in crisis, the last thing you want to do is have to read like five different RFPs and figure out which one you apply to first and the mm -hmm. um, challenges of, of each. That's like not the best use of someone's time in, in crisis. <laughs> yeah. When I interviewed a number of business owners in Montpelier, uh, for an article a few months ago, uh, just hearing their stories of the paperwork, yeah, you know, and the paperwork getting returned and having to do it again. And just, you're trying to, to get your wet inventory out of the store. So it doesn't create a mold hazard and you have to do a FEMA form five times. Like, that's stressful. And I think in the human services world, we have spent a lot of time acknowledging that individuals experiencing economic crisis or family crisis cannot be expected to engage in like hundreds of pages of documentation. And while I think we've made a small amount of progress on that, there is a long way to go to enable um, sort of an easy flow of resources and information between families mm -hmm. and government. That we're all in crisis now, like our government agencies are in crisis. Like we are all really um, quite activated at most times right now. And so the more we can enable that to be possible from the, you know, single mom who's trying to make it work to the, you know, town manager or town clerk or um, regional planner, I think the better off we'll all be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a big equity piece there, right? Like if it is so complicated and hard to access capital, those who already have resources are going to be the most likely to be able to do that. And, you know, if we want to make sure that we leave no community behind as we face you know, climate change, we need to make sure we're designing programs so that our most vulnerable, highest poverty, least resources, least capacity communities can access it. Otherwise, they're going to get left behind. Mm -hmm. This is going back. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I'll say this quickly. One thing that stood out to me uh, for my article in Montpelier after the flood was a conversation I had with, um, oh no, Melissa Bounty uh, at the regional uh, economic development sent corporation in, in her area in Washington County. And she said she'd been working with a lot of folks who were uh, new Americans or people of color who were small business owners and how for many of them, you know, sole proprietor entrepreneurship was really the way, the only way they could access capital 
and, and for their family. And yet the way so many of our systems are set up, it actually leaves those people out of the recovery process. And that has just stood out to me about um, some of the gaps in our, our system that we're still working to kind of knit up. I mean, I would say that thus far, the recovery effort as led by the governor has left individuals behind writ large. Mm -hmm. um, that very little of what's happened from the administration has been focused on individual folks who um, saw their homes harmed um, or individual very small businesses. I think what we've seen is responses that in some cases are of service to town and town government, but not anywhere near the scale we need to see. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen a lot of efforts put towards much larger businesses. Um, but we really need to be thinking about, you know, people in these times. Well, and I would even say it's not always working for larger for, you know, and as you said, like our, our system isn't a well-oiled machine. And sometimes there can be really confusing messages about the steps in the process. And so working with one organization that lost had over $3 million in damage in Johnson that got confusing messages about um, when they needed to apply for FEMA public assistance. Mm -hmm. And um, they heard that they needed to go through SBA first and SBA was really delayed in responding to them. And as a result, they missed the FEMA public assistance deadline. And this business again, had like $3 million worth of, you know, uh, damage in Johnson. And it's really discouraging to hear that they kind of missed this opportunity to access federal resources. Although we're working hard to wrap a sport around them, but you know, if I, like I think all across the whole spectrum, we like our, our system isn't working and, and I'm, you know, looking forward to working with Emily when we get back in January to try to wrap our uh, head around it and, and come up with better systems to work better for all Vermonters. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, will return after we hear from some of our underwriters. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the show. And if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser and Representative uh, Catherine Sims. And we've been talking about disaster recovery and mitigation. And I want to thank BCTV, who is always wonderful at sharing our video version of our podcast with folks all over the state of Vermont. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you do that. We always love new subscribers. And Emily, what do we need to remind listeners? Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively and not the station, nor their employers, friends, pets, neighbors. Houseplants, none of them. <laughs> yeah, my houseplants seem to have opinions these days since I turned the heat on, so I don't <laughs> definitely know for them. Yeah, they, they might have a whole, you'll come into your office tomorrow and there'll be a list just hanging on the wall. Mm -hmm. 
And for anyone who's been missing the great big house plant that lived behind me through many, many, many Zooms, rest assured, it's fine. It's just in a different room right now. Good. Because I actually kind of was wondering. <laughs> um, before the break, Emily, you, uh, you and uh, Catherine were talking about funding uh, for that could possibly go into H105, which was the bill we were talking about to set up a disaster uh, fund, a disaster and mitigation fund for communities. Uh, and you mentioned that there's a lot of layers to this funding conversation. Would you kind of fill listeners in on that? Um, well, funding anything, there's always lots of layers of conversation. Um, especially for but, people on ways and means. Especially for people on ways and means. But actually, one... In my five years now in the legislature, um, I've seen that things often become more possible when many conversations all suddenly converge at once. Um, and I feel like that might be true in some ways on this issue. So we've been talking for years and years and years about the need for municipalities to have more ways of accessing infrastructure resources. And so there have been conversations about TIFs and mini TIFs, which I'm not gonna get into what those are right now, just know that they're a thing that we keep on talking about. Um, there have, you know, there was a lot of promise around federal money for infrastructure. Some of that came through, but there's always conversations around sort of the intersection of economic development and community infrastructure. And how do we fund that? We put a request for a study into legislation, um, this last year. And so we're going to get a report, um, in the next few months, month in the next month. Um, it's really like almost January now um, that talks about essentially like how does every other state in the country do this? And lots of states do it in a lot of interesting ways. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, two examples that come up for me right now are New York has a very cool thing where basically they take all of the different sort of state pots of money and federal pots of money that fund community town level infrastructure they put them all together into a fund that they have to manage separately because right there are different rules for the different kinds of federal money, but the state manages all of those rules and flows. And then towns just essentially apply for projects. Um, and then the state manages sort of what the appropriate sub fund or sub stream within that larger fund would be. Um, and so the state is responsible for the blending and the braiding, which is sort of what we call it in weird techno fiscal speak mm -hmm. of those funds rather than making the town or the developer be responsible for all that blending and braiding, which is an incredibly sort of time and intensive process. Um, so that's one example. Minnesota does something totally differently where they raise funds at the state level and then distribute those funds to municipalities to do what they will with but based on a formula that takes into account the poverty level of the town, which might, you know, sort of match its ability to raise its own revenues and um, the population of that town and all the kinds of other, you know, is that town right next to a, you know, federal dam? I don't know, all kinds of different ways. Um, and so distribute revenue to towns in that way. And so that's sort of two examples. We could do both of those simultaneously. 
So we have all that happening right now. That's been sort of an ongoing conversation that seems to be um, coming to a little bit of a head right now. We have Catherine's bill um, and all of these conversations around sort of like liability and funding for infrastructure. We have the flood, which means a lot more people are paying attention to this. Mm -hmm. um, and we have this make big oil pay campaign, which sort of follows in the footsteps of a number of other campaigns around essentially asking corporations or forcing corporations to be paying for the messes they made, right? Tobacco settlements, opioid settlements, um, PCB settlements, PFA settlements, like we saw in Bennington, um, all of those things. I was gonna try to say that poly whatever word and then I just, I bailed on that effort. Um, and so all, <laughs> thank you. So all of those, I felt so bad for the people who had to report bills on those things. Um, so all of those efforts are all sort of coming together simultaneously and all hitting the legislature at once. And when that happens, if we are able to be flexible minded people, which we not always, it's not always true, but can sometimes be true. Um, it means that we can maybe say like, yes, and rather than or. And when we say yes, and I think legislation is more possible. But I think Catherine can get into the details of this insurance payment thing, because I that's something I actually don't know that much about and really curious about. Sure, I'll try not to go too far into the weeds here. Um, you are allowed as weedy as you want to get. We love the weeds, <laughs> live for the weeds. So this was modeled a bit after uh, a similar bill that was passed in Colorado um, maybe two years ago. Um, and and the, the idea here is that you look at insurance companies that are usually footing the bill for the kind of cleanup and repair after, and you raise revenue before and make that investment up front to save all of us money in the long run. Because, you know, this stuff does have costs, but it's going to cost less to um, invest up front. Uh, as uh, Emily was telling us earlier, you know, we saw that play out with the Irene investments, um, making Southern Vermont uh, more resilient in the face of the flood that we had this summer. And so um, this bill contemplates um, insurance companies that are writing fire, homeowners, multiple peril, allied lines, farm owners, multiple peril, you know, a certain set of insurance products, and it increases an assessment on them and the, the bill, as kind of initially drafted, would raise not more than um, $5.3 million, um, with $3 million of that going into this Community Resilience and Disaster Mitigation Fund. Um, the uh, rest of it goes to kind of existing other beneficiaries of, of the um, this fund that, that exists right now. And so, again, we're, you know, asking everyone to, you know, pay a little bit more, $3 million was what was contemplated in the bill. And, you know, hopefully we can take this up and have conversations about, well, what is the right amount of money that we need um, to raise and to complement, you know, the other funding sources that that Emily mentioned. And then that would go into this fund. Folks would be able to apply to access it, hopefully for the assessment and planning, the investments in infrastructure like grid hardening or buyouts or watershed restoration um, and, uh, you know, resiliency hubs so that uh, when something happens, there's a place we can go to be safe and warm and dry or cool or whatever we need in that moment. Thank you. Curious about, um, you, you mentioned buyouts and of course I don't expect either of you to be uh, experts on buyouts, but one thing I think it uh, 
caught my ear is because I have had many conversations throughout disasters with people who are like, you know, I qualify for a buyout, but what I would get from, say, the FEMA process does not cover actually finding a new place to live. And, and so it's like, stay in your home and know you're probably going to get flooded or whatever again, or take a buyout and, you know, go into debt. Um, and, uh, so that just caught my, my ear. So it sounds like it would possibly be a supplement to like the FEMA process or it could be. Yeah, so in, in my conversations with the Vermont Emergency Management folks, there are things that FEMA are really good at paying for, um, but, you know, sometimes require a match. And there's also a set of things that they aren't covering. And so, again, the advantage of sort of pooling all these resources into one program is that we can match the right funding source with the um, with the right need and hopefully cover a broader swath of hazards and unique circumstances. And, um, you know, again, like there's a lot of money often available after the fact. But, you know, a lot less uh, up front, you know, so if my community wanted to do, you know, big grid hardening project, there are less places they can turn to, even though that would mean that the power went off less in the middle of the winter when people are cold and um, stuck in their homes. So, you know, again, excited to have this conversation with everyone about how do we get um, smarter and leveraging our dollars and and using them for stuff that will um, make us safer in, in the long run. Mm-hmm. I think about buyouts. Um, I mean, yes, FEMA's not even close to enough and also doesn't acknowledge the buyout process as it is now is done on this individual by individual level. And I think leaves out the reality that folks are part of communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so when someone is thinking about a buyout, is it, do I have a buyout that allows me to stay in the same neighborhood um, so I can maintain all of my relationships so that I, you know, feel safe and whole and like still of this community after experiencing this terrible tragedy or um, in order to prevent this tragedy. And so how do we think about buyouts that sort of acknowledges that um, and the financial reality? So yesterday I went to the Brattleboro Housing Partnership um, annual meeting and part of that, you know, that was held at Red Clover Common, which was a building that was built in order to create housing for folks who were asked to move from this, you know, 100 unit long standing housing development that had flooded essentially in every single storm its entire history, right? Because we know that housing for poor people is built in floodplains, right? And so it needs to be, you know, we need to create buyout situations that actually create new housing for people, right? It's not just like giving someone's cash. It's, you know, offering cash to help with the move. It's also saying like, here's another place to live or in Tri-Park where where mobile homes are being replaced by better, more energy efficient mobile homes in the same community, but just further up a hill, right? Like that's what we need to be talking about when we're talking about buyouts. It's maintaining communities, it's improving people's quality of life and acknowledging that even in that situation, this is still like an incredibly emotional thing to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emily. Mm -hmm.
and hold space for communities to say, what does this mean for kind of the community at large? Like, what are we going to do with these spaces as we're transitioning out from housing? What does it mean for our downtowns? You know, which many of them are kind of centered around um, flood pathways. So lots of really complex stuff, but um, vital that we be having these conversations so that we're helping Vermonters stay safer. I have spoken to leaders in both Wilmington and Montpelier, and those come to mind because they basically have rivers running through both of them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so often the quick response is, well, let's just move the town. And, you know, it's pretty unlikely. (laughs) Like, yeah, you're not going to take all of Montpelier and move it. And and probably more costly than making investments to help those communities weather future floods. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I can understand folks saying we need to totally reimagine where everything is. And there are some cases where it makes sense, as I was saying before, to kind of move mobile home communities out of, um, you know, flood pathways. And also, you know, we've spent... Uh, you know, decades investing in our village centers and downtowns. And, you know, I think I think we just need to make sure that we're having those climate resilient conversations in those spaces as well and saying, like, knowing what's coming, what can we do to make this place safer and more resilient? Um, and in the future, it at least seems like the best use of our limited resources to me rather than <laughs> uprooting an entire downtown and figuring out where else to put it. And, you know, I, I don't see us ha- doing that in every community. And I don't want us to kind of further leave um, our small downtown rural communities further behind. I was really surprised to learn um, this year that in the aftermath of the flood, floods in the 20s, and in the 1890s, is that when another, there was another huge flood? That I think about right, yeah. Okay. Um, the <laughs> towns that experienced massive flooding, there were some towns that just like absolutely abandoned ship. Like just everyone left the town, and there's like still no one mm-hmm. um, in that area anymore. And that's like we don't know what was lost because of that either. Um, And that was because there was no state or federal response at that time. And so I think in some ways there was something gained that homes did not stay for people to be flooded out of, you know, decade after decade after decade. Um, But we don't know like what the impact was on those folks or on what might've sprung out of those communities long-term if they'd been able to stay. And so I think as we move forward and we talk about what does it mean to build flood resilient infrastructure and flood responsive infrastructure. I think that's going to be the question of balancing those two things. Mm -hmm. I also just want to remind people that infrastructure of 2023 is different than infrastructure of like the 1890s. Um, You know, now to move a house, you have to disconnect plumbing and electricity and all that modern infrastructure where, you know, we used to have a community in Whitingham on top of the, the hill, the town common, where they just picked up the house, the houses at one point and moved to them. But they didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have electricity. They were just a box that you could pick up and and move down the hill for whatever reason they did that. Uh, so, yeah, I just want to remind people that our infrastructure is much more complex than it used to be. And I think the infrastructure and homes that we're building today 
are actually in some ways less complex. Like the, you know, what we're seeing with the mobile homes that are being built, the manufactured, we now call them manufactured homes, the manufactured homes that are being built today actually have like much more integrated electrical and plumbing systems. So they are much more movable than they were. Or um, there's a architect in Brattleboro who's building like plumbing, like bathroom and kitchen systems that can just be plunked into a home rather so that things are much more like movable and possible. And so I think that also offers hope for what we might be building next. Thank you. Um, Catherine, I'd love to shift to forestry, but is there anything else in kind of what we've been talking around funding that you wanted to, to add before we did that? Uh, no, this, this has been a great, rich conversation. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's challenging to find additional resources in a small state. And yet, you know, I think there's nothing more important than investing in the safety of Vermonters. Um, and so, you know, looking forward to what will be a rich, complex conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and I would add, it's really, um, it's tricky to find resources in a small state, yes. And I think the trick there is to find resources in our small state that will actually save us money. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a very clear one, right? That's what we talk about in the context of childcare funding. Um, and that's really, I think, very key to what we're talking about here is that we are investing upfront so that we are saving all of the dollars that it takes to respond to an emergency on the other end. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I had noticed when I read your, your bio, Catherine, that you have um, experience with agriculture, which led me to ponder, you know, given some of the things agriculture and forestry have been experienced weather-wise weather in the, this past year, what have you been hearing from, from those communities, particularly forestry, which I think well, often we forget about, I know I forget about. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, right, our, our working landscape is such like an essential part of Vermont, right? Our farms grow our food, our forests, um, you know, produce uh, wood that we use in all kinds of different ways every day and also, you know, help sequester carbon and hopefully... Um, uh, water they also help sequester water water yeah that's why I, I was like i was trying to find the right words like hold water up in the mountains before they you know fill our valleys and flood our homes um yeah and and you know coming to the legislature i was really familiar with the ag side of the working landscape and it's been a journey for me to really kind of learn about that other half our forests which really you know cover more acres of vermont and provide you know a, a real myriad of benefits but i think maybe isn't always like front and center in our, our conversations about the working landscape. And so, you know, I, I think many of us saw after the flood, the, you know, awful photos of just crop fields, you know, totally underwater, you know, up here, we, we lost, you know, a, a lot of corn, folks lost a lot of hay. Um, you know, most of our veggie farms were right up, up here, but, you know, down in the Intervale, people lost, you know, their entire season's worth um, of food and just, you know, really devastating, um, you know, and we rely on that food, you know, that's farmer's income. And I I think as we, you know, head into kind of winter here, just even the the full scope of loss, you know, won't become clear until folks really have time to sit down and, and look at their books. And um, yeah, sorry, Emily, you were. 
I was just going to say, and farms are in river valleys for a very good reason, right? Like that is the most fertile soil. That's why they're there moving. Doesn't, I mean, moving a farm is even harder than moving a home. And like there, there's a reason that they're in river valleys. And I was really, you know, even um, some of the most economically strong and resilient and sort of established farms in my area um, in Wyndham County, we actually saw a lot less flooding than a lot of other places um, had moments this summer that they really thought they might need to fold. Um, so that's sort of the scale of the damages that we saw in the farm context. And then, you know, yeah. climate change and forestry is a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. And we'll even add to right. Like if you spend, you know, there's from up here, Riverside, I mean, I spent three decades building soil on their river bottom mm -hmm. farm. And then, you know, it got washed out and replaced with gravel over, you know, it's like, it's just, it, it, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, and the Agency of Agriculture and others, you know, stood up relief programs. I think we were able to, you know, earmark a special set aside and the B gap. I don't remember what those actually stand like business. Emily, B gap, any help? No. Okay. <laughs> business second. Sorry, I approved like 12 grants about it. Um business, yeah. economic. I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, businesses were able to apply for funding. There was a big pot and there was like a special set aside for farms. I'm sure it didn't make everybody whole, but like at least we were able to kind of respond rapidly around that need. Um, you know, in the sense that I've heard from a lot of folks within our forestry community, like loggers um, and, you know, landowners who, who suffered really significant losses as well that haven't found kind of the right program to help address their losses. Because oh, you know, many folks uh, weren't able to get out in the woods because, you know, roads were flooded and, you know, even if they had roads, it was really wet. And that's not when you're supposed to be running your machinery there. And so um, the uh, Forest Parks and Rec put out a survey and they were able to, you know, at least try to kind of document some of the economic loss there. But I we definitely haven't been able to kind of make people whole there. And it has opened up, you know, for me with folks, a kind of broader conversation about what is climate change looking like for our forests? And as again, we get wetter and warmer, it is really the number of days that folks who work in the woods is rapidly diminishing. Folks used to be able to rely on snow and, you know, frozen conditions to get out and work all winter. Um, and then, you know, drier summers, which now have more and more wet days. And again, people can't get their machines out in the woods to do work, um, which, you know, Im impacts, um, you know, their livelihood. And, you know, we know that a well-managed forest is critical um, around, you know, climate change adaptation and resiliency. We want to be capturing and storing the water up in the woods. We want to be sequestering that carbon. Um, and, you know, a lot of water quality um, best practice management ha happens in the woods. And so if we want to folks to be able to continue to work in the woods, we need to figure out how to support, um, you know, uh, people being able to make make their livelihoods working in the woods. And, um, you know, we're hopefully coming forward with a couple of recommendations around that. We have a lot of um, reimbursement programs for farmers to help them invest in water quality Um you know, programs. And so, you know, can we, you know, look at maybe similar models for uh, loggers to support their investments in, um, you know, best practice management um, in the woods to help folks continue to make a living? Um, can we compensate folks for, for that climate resilience work? Um, and also help folks get into new equipment that can help them work in the woods uh, as our weather changes as well. Um, so just... 
That's a lot of food for thought. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. I will say that when we were proving the BGAP money, I asked explicitly if the farm fund was intended to cover both like food processors and I did ask about forestry, mostly because you, Catherine, have trained me very well to think about forestry. So thank you for that. Um, and I was reassured that, yes, it sort of counted as agriculture. So I am um, mm. going Let's to take that. about that offline. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we have these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. So we can identify <laughs> where other ones need to happen. Um, we are just about out of time. Uh, it really flew by. Thank you, Catherine, for the really great conversation. What do you want to leave listeners with right now? Well, I mean, maybe I'll just go back to the, um, you know, what I try to say whenever I'm talking with folks about policy is that, like, we can only do our work um when we're, you know, really well informed by folks. And so, you know, I want to make sure that everyone knows the state house doors are like always open. And if you're interested in testifying, if you, you know, like the, the wisdom is in the room and we need everyone's um, voice and perspective and input about how we tackle these really big challenges that face our, our state, you know, how do we adapt in the face of climate change? What are the resources, tools, supports that individuals and communities need? And, um, the more we can hear from you about what you've seen work in your community or what the um, challenges or gaps, the, the better off we are. So looking forward to a rich conversation and hope folks will join us in that conversation. Thank you. Emily, any last thoughts? I think that was perfectly said. And if folks want to reach out and connect about any of those issues, you can find all my contact information at emilykornheiser.org. Thank you. And Representative Catherine Sims uh, from Orleans District 4, uh, thanks for joining us. And is there uh, any way if people want to contact with you, how can they do that? Yeah. What is my website? Catherine Sims uh, for house.com. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour airs on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2, and is rebroadcasted on Wednesday mornings as well. If you want to talk to either Emily or I, you can always drop us an email at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.